Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. With the start of a new year dampened by Omicron and yet another surge in COVID-19 infections, it's hard not to wonder what this next normal would look like for healthcare. After chatting with each of our heads of sector, I'm here with Dynamics' Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to bring it all together and discuss which trends we can expect to see across the industry this year. As we head into yet another year of the pandemic, there continues to be immense strain on the entire healthcare system. One area this is manifesting is in the cost of care. Mindy, can you tell me a little bit about what we can expect when it comes to budgets and benefits in 2022? This is one of those trends that has been percolating for some time. When we talk about the trends today, I think there's just so much connective tissue between each of these trends, and we're only going to hit on a couple, right? But this is a large trend around the tightening of budgets and the change in benefit constructs that really drives as an input to many of the other trends that we're going to hit on today. And I think what it comes down to is plan sponsors, you know, the payers of healthcare are really facing just a level of exponential cost increase and cost shifting that's never been greater. And, you know, at some point we see that patients are finding that this is equally unaffordable. And so you talked a little bit about how COVID has played a role in this trend, but I think what it's done is it's just highlighted, right? The, the cost of care is only getting greater and we see what's going on with our economy and inflation. And we've seen healthcare price inflation occurring for quite some time. So this is not a new trend, but I would say it's a trend that continues to mature and just present itself in a way that needs to be addressed. And it's driven by a combination of our population that's aging, right? The COVID issue that we've continued to face and just this practice of price taking that continues to present itself with all sectors in the healthcare system. And, you know, an example of that, I, th I think in the headlines we see regularly, right, that drug companies continue to, to increase their prices and that the median of almost 500 drugs was like 500% higher than when they were brought to market originally. But that's just one example, right, of where we see price hiking. And the result of all of this is that payers are feeling it. And so as a result, they're faced with budget constraints. And that drives a need to change benefits and what, what types of things get covered and at what level they get covered. So I think this trend is here to stay for a while, and it's really going to be spotlighted in 2022. The party really feeling this trend is consumers, right? They're experiencing this budget squeeze with narrowing services and, and the idea of managing access and coverage in a more kind of micromanaged level. And we've seen this from out-of-pocket spending, right? Out-of-pocket spending jumped in 2021, and there's futurists that say that's not going to change. And, you know, think about your day-to-day -day life of maybe getting a COVID test or we're actually spending money. It's coming out of our pocket as, as retail health has become more of the norm. And some of these costs are just unaffordable for most Americans. And we've talked about this, this trend around consumerism and how this started. And it, some would say it started with payers maybe 30, 35 years ago in the early 90s. 
when they began to grow this immense amount of networks and negotiated these discounts using the leverage of their membership. And then, you know, health systems and hospitals had to respond to this and they responded to this by consolidating. And this consolidation has been going on for, for many years. And, you know, we've said this before, you know, consumers, Americans, we love a good deal. We love negotiating and buying a car in this kind of like rugged individualistic free market that we live in. The problem with healthcare is there is there is opacity and a kind of literacy inequity between buyer and seller that still exists. Now, I think there's some good news about this trend as well. There, there's companies that are popping up and trying to help mitigate this. And I use GoodRx as an example. And not only that, there's policy, right? There's policy being put into place, one of which from 2020, I think, is the Consolidated Appropriations Act. And it includes provisions to increase transparency. And, you know, some people think, oh, it's just performative transparency, but there is some real meat behind this. And I think, you know, requirements for group health plans to ensure they have access to claims data. There's a Mental Health Parity and Addiction Act that's part of this that prohibits group health plans from providing disproportionate benefits for mental health and substance abuse disorders. So there's there's some things moving forward to help mitigate this trend. I don't know if it's going as fast as the actual trend itself, but we should see. Ryan, I think your points that you make around the importance of transparency, particularly as consumers are expected to take on more and more of this cost sharing is so important. It's really hard for us to expect consumers to make informed decisions and really be that empowered consumer that is so often talked about in this modern healthcare market without really giving them the information they need to be able to make effective decisions. And I want to make sure that we emphasize that this isn't just a problem with, you know, tightening costs and, you know, changing benefit constructs in the commercial and employer-sponsored plan space. Government payers are continuing to face this pressure as well, particularly in Medicare and Medicaid, especially as they're facing the losses at the federal and state levels associated with covid And we've talked about it on some of our trending news episodes, just this hospital and medical trust fund insolvency concern that we're really staring down when it comes to funding Medicare, particularly in light of an increasingly larger population that's above the age of 65. I want to talk a little bit about health equity because we know that healthcare costs, when they are particularly high on consumers, they have a larger impact on the uninsured, on Black and Hispanic adults, and on those with lower incomes. Ryan, how do you see health equity really fitting into all of this? If you go to any health system website, I think Mark Harrison from Intermountain Healthcare just released an a article on HBR. Almost every large health system has put this as one of their key strategic priorities. And COVID magnified this this really kind of already existing social, economic, and institutional inequity that existed. And the pandemic just kind of elevated and exposed to these health disparities. And we saw statistics where people of color suffered disproportionately. Under the pandemic, Black folks dying 2.1 times more of a rate than white folks. And 18.2% of of COVID deaths in the United States were, were part of the Latino community. So, you know, people and factors that include where people live, right? Their access to jobs, food, primary care education. It's been like this for a, for a long time, but it's truly affecting the outcomes more than clinical care. 
and you know, I'll use like another use case. You know, prostate cancer in men is second only to skin cancer as it's kind of the prevalence. And when you look at mid-May or mid-March to mid-May in 2019, this is pre-pandemic, there's a study and there was parity among black men and white men to have a procedure to remove the prostate gland. You look at COVID a year later, and there, there's, you know, this is the Journal of American Medicine. One percent of black men had a prostatectomy. Well, 26 percent of white patients did. A huge gap existed, and we know that that's a, a huge piece of the puzzle in helping stem and mitigate prostate cancer. So the one thing I think about when we talk about health equity is how do how does a multicultural 50 state country even attempt to apply this idea of health equity smartly and eradicating these disparities seems really big and almost too big to conquer if you think about it at a large macro level and reminder that medical care is only one facet of health equity disparities are typically correlated with zip code like i said before education housing and generational poverty and this is this is health inequity and i was just reading an article recently on how do we kind of move forward? There's this idea of intersectional data science, and that sounds complex, but it really isn't. It's the idea of for typical studies, you know, you may compare or look at outcomes between black men and white men or rich and poor or male or female. A Brigham Health study did this double, triple click with data science. And, you know, they took it a, ne a next step. And, and I use an example. They found that Hispanic, non-English speaking patients were dying at a higher rate than Hispanic English speaking patients. So there's some there's some kind of next level data science that you can do to really highlight some interventions, i.e. putting access to language interpreters. I know that's kind of a simple example, but I think those are the types of micro things that we need to do from a health equity perspective. And uh, you, you know, this is this is probably the trend of our society right now. Ryan, I, I agree with you. And I think like COVID really shined a light on this inequity. I mean, I think it brought it from maybe a trend that was brewing to something that's in the headlines on a regular basis. I'm going to add to it by just saying some of the policy out of the Biden administration has put this as a top priority in the policy that they are looking to either employ, adopt, and roll out that also goes beyond the healthcare system. And we've talked about that a lot, right? It's about pulling different sectors together to help address this. Because while we saw it shine really bright within healthcare, especially during the first round of COVID and then even with the vaccines, I think there's this acknowledgement that, that across the board, it's going to take more than just the healthcare system, right, to really address this. And I think that speaks to to the fact that this trend, right, has both huge opportunity around it, but also challenges. And when I think about one of the biggest challenges around this trend, it's some of the ingrained mistrust in healthcare as an institution. And I think that's probably the largest collective challenge when we think about what healthcare leaders need to overcome in order to address things like stigma and drivers of health and inaccessible and affordable care. So... You know, I think there's both opportunities and challenges with this trend. I think you're so right, Mindy, where we've, we've started the conversation and we've acknowledged the challenges that exist, particularly when we only try to address this from within the healthcare system without trying to factor in some of the larger social determinants of health. But this conversation has really triggered a new time of opportunity. Ryan, to your point, 
more than half of health systems have identified equity as a top priority for this year, you know, almost double what it was two years ago. So the conversation is open, the appetite is there, and organizations now really have the opportunity to launch new products and services that can innovate on cost, access, coverage, engagement, and ultimately equity. And I want to talk a little bit more about the explosion of new products and services that we've seen in the healthcare space over the last few years. Mindy, what are some of the areas that you expect to see the most activity when it comes to new products and services this year? Everywhere care. I mean, consumer preference. We talk about consumers a lot on this podcast, but I think when you look at what consumers are expecting and now demanding of the healthcare system, it boils down to just their preference. And you couple that with things like technology advancements. And the result is that they're driving care outside of traditional healthcare offices and beyond the appointment. So as as more consumers utilize things like wearables and there's more adoption of tools around remote patient monitoring and telehealth, which really just boomed during the first round of COVID and has continued its trajectory. And then you see the introduction right, of alternative sites of care, whether it is retail health clinics or urgent care facilities. You start to add all of that together and you realize that the channels of delivering healthcare become multiple. Right? It's no longer traditionally going into the physician's office. The system is shifting to meet consumers' demand for healthcare anywhere and anytime. And what that looks like right now is that healthcare is moving into the home. It's moving into communities because people fear their safety and have feared their safety going into hospitals and and physicians' offices during COVID. But there's also a value play here where consumers value convenience and cost savings. And so if they are able to access care when they want and where they want, they'll do it. And I think there's been a breakdown of one of the biggest barriers, and that is the comfort level with sharing personal information. We're now sharing personal information online. It has become part of the new normal. And I think that's what's feeding in or driving some of this everywhere care that we're, we're seeing as a trend that's taking shape. Studies are indicating that over the next 10 years, as much as 50% of healthcare will move from the hospitals and clinics to homes and communities. Quick story, you know, we, we toured um, a really large health system in, in North Carolina, and they had just added an entire wing, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and the, the leader was telling us that their prediction is that hospitals will become either ICU or, or step-down units, and then the rest of acute care will be done in the home in the future. And, you know, you know, from a personal story, I'll take it a step further. There's also some, some risks and obstacles, right, around this. And one of the opportunities is really elevating folks and, and providers and utilizing lower-cost providers. I think that we're moving towards that trend. I think that it doesn't just include pharmacists, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, but it does include them. I would take it even a step further and talk about home aides and nursing assistants and medical assistants who are trained to do some pretty, you know, intense clinical tech, uh, clinical 
procedures that maybe don't do them often now. Personally, I have a family member who has has cancer. I've discussed this with you. And here's some of the downside of this everywhere care. She's home. She's recovering and has oral chemotherapy. She's required to perform what is called as a pleurodesis, which is this stopping the fluid within her lungs to help relieve symptoms. And it's this idea of draining uh, fluid every other day or every third day. And it is not simple. It's not a simple procedure. So for years, a nurse or a physician would have to do this. And now we're asking folks and patients at home to do this. So I think there's an element of education and literacy that has to be done as this trend continues. And Ryan, I think that ties into exactly what we were talking about around budget constraints and benefit constructs. So like what's driving some of this it's not just the technology, but it's the market, right? Reacting to the fact that budgets are getting tighter and benefit constructs are changing and you add technology to this and now you add consumer preference and consumer demand. And we see it all kind of coming together where there's more of an openness to consider how people get treated, maybe outside of what has been our traditional treatment arenas. And a lot that's where, when we talk about those connective tissues, I think your example right here just creates like this aha moment of like, yeah, you can see what's driving it, right? It's it's because budgets are constrained. It's because benefits have, have been adjusted and what's covered and where it's covered changes. And now you have technology which enables the ability to do some of this, right? And be able to remotely monitor how somebody like your aunt may be doing with some of the self-care that may have been traditionally done in a hospital visit. I think too, as we're looking at this healthcare shifting, whether due to the cost constraints many that you brought up or to consumer preference or these advancements in technology that are really helping facilitate it, it's going to become more important than ever to facilitate this new normal of everywhere care with the appropriate data infrastructure, right? Now that we have all these other channels and tools, we are generating more data than ever, right? And data is really positioned to become the new healthcare currency, both in terms of how we capture value within the healthcare system, but also in terms of being the crux of continuity of care as people are not seeing their regular primary care provider as much or are shifting to a more fragmented system than our already fragmented healthcare system as they're pursuing these new channels. There needs to be the appropriate transformation of information from point to point so that all of these new channels have the right availability of the appropriate information to make the right care decisions. You know, the idea of this data as the burgeoning healthcare currency, Mindy has been saying this for years. I think it's really come to light recently, but not only has COVID accelerated the adoption of consumers' comfort and access to digital healthcare tools, which we've talked about a lot, you know, medical students, physicians, and clinicians, and nurses are also using this data at, at the point of care with the use of patient health apps. And another study said that 70% of medical students support the use of wearable devices. So there is this kind of cross-functional idea that data is the new healthcare currency. And taking it a step further, there is heightened rigor around this data quality and management. And it's got to be top of mind because there's so much data. And, you know, the idea of going from unstructured data to harmonized data, we've talked about that before from when, when drugs are discovered. The same goes for kind of patient data as well in, in, in the real world. And it'll be interesting to see, and, you know, from a cross-sector perspective, you think about 
healthcare technology firms that are quickly and, and continually trying to help providers, help payers, help life science companies really put some rigor around that data, harmonize that data and help them come up with better clinical decisions. It's just going, you know, every day there's there's new information. And one other thing I'd mention about this is the stakeholder list for all this data has grown. This new currency landscape requires this smooth transition and sharing across stakeholders. It's not just providers, payers, and patients. It's other companies and other areas of, of healthcare and analytics that need this information. And although the stakeholder list has grown for incorporating this data, perhaps the ability to share the data has not grown as fast enough. There's still some rigidity and, and inflexibility in the EHR world. Ryan, I think it's part of why we've seen the the value-based kind of arrangements almost slog along a little bit in the healthcare system, because we know that we're moving towards what I would call a data-driven ecosystem, right? Where in this value-based health economy, data is going to tell the story. It's going to provide the evidence, and these evidence-based indicators are going to become increasingly more diverse, more measurable, and at some point, more easily accessible because data is everywhere, but to your point, it's very fragmented right now. And so the trend that I think we see taking shape here is, you know, it started initially with the liberation of data about five or six years ago. And now we start to see the market jumping in and and service providers jumping in and trying to find ways to not only consolidate this data, but harmonize it and be able to share it in a fluid manner. And I think one of the things that that became abundantly clear last year when COVID first presented itself was that our healthcare system needed to learn faster. And what was behind all of that was data. And so I think of COVID as an accelerator to this trend that we're seeing where data becomes the new currency in healthcare, because what it did is it unlocked a lot or accelerated a lot of innovation around how to get out of how to get data out of where it was residing and move it across the sectors. You know, and I think it speaks to, to just the ingenuity that can occur, right, when, when presented with a very significant issue such as COVID and how important data was in accelerating our ability to learn about the disease and then obviously create vaccines and take them out to the marketplace. I think there's still some big barriers as we start to see this trend take shape with executives of healthcare organizations really identifying and addressing, right, the fact that data is is really decentralized. And there is also policy that has not come current with the movement of data in our healthcare system. And so I think those two things really present themselves as barriers that could slow this trend down in terms of its emergence. But I think if we can figure out how to address those things in a more open manner and that the regulation and the compliance elements kind of start to become more current, there's no reason to expect that this trend doesn't just continue to grow and mature and and push its way out into the marketplace. When I'm thinking about, you know, data really becoming this 21st century equivalent of oil, thinking about what that could enable for the healthcare system in the context of helping facilitate this new everywhere care model. It feels like we're in a key proving time where 
we need to figure this out before we face one of the other largest trends of the 21st century when it comes to healthcare, which is the, the new aging and the rapid aging of our current population. By 2030, the over 65 segment is expected to soar to 72 million or about a fifth of the total population. And this growing group of older Americans is going to have a huge demand on our healthcare system, but I think also a changing expectation for what healthcare looks like for them. No doubt about it, Jen. I mean, this dramatically growing group of older Americans offers huge opportunity to identify innovative ways to deal with both medical and functional needs of what an aging population that prefers to age in their home as well, looks like. And so, you know, I think one of the things that's so interesting is some recent studies of just seniors that are now aging in place or aging in their home. They self-registered in these studies that indicate that baby boomers are actually active users of technology. They self-identify, right, as early tech adopters. Now we, we could say, well, what does early tech adopters really mean? But the reality is like, they're getting more comfortable. And so if you think of just that the range of population sets that we would consider to be 65 and older, what we know is like the folks that are aging in to the Medicare arena have been surrounded by technology in some capacity. So their comfort level is probably much higher than somebody that might be in their 80s and, and not so familiar with the technology that, that we're using today. But I think what we, we see is that this population offers a new way for us as a healthcare system to really think about the products and the services that we offer to them to enable them to to continue to be productive members of society. And, and whether that means aging in their home or other types of expectations that they may have, I think there's so much innovation that can happen in this, this trend as we see it take shape. And it's going to require some like disciplined thinking, but really getting into the heart of, of what aging in place or aging, the new aging actually looks like for us as a healthcare system and where we place our big bets in order to really gain the hearts and minds, I think, of people in this population, because it's, it's a significant portion of our population. You think about my story with my aunt with cancer, this demand for caregivers will completely increase. And I think that you think about the workforce situation that exists, not just in the United States, but other developed nations as well, the need for family caregivers will increase. So we really need to rethink the way we compensate that we that we educate and that we train some of these caregivers, whether it's family members or actually workers themselves. We've talked about this before as well, the idea of end of life prep and this, this idea of advanced directives. There was just an article in the Kaiser Health Foundation today around, there's some, there's some controversy around this and the expansion of hospital and hospice-related services. There's some physicians that, that don't believe that we should be filling out advanced directive needs earlier in life and that it should be done more real time. So it'll be interesting to see how end-of-life prep evolves. And then as Jen, you've mentioned before, this idea of many folks entering into Medicare and this, this boom, I guess, for Medicare Advantage, it's not going to be just a one-year or two-year thing. This will continue, and the focus on this expectations for the new aging population will be on the forefront for sure. Great points, Ryan, about the impact of this population on you know, what's expected as a benefit, perhaps provided by our health plans or provided by Medicare, and 
the expectations that these plans or systems might have to enact in order to support this growing need. I think another area that we expect to really have healthcare payers, whether they be commercial payers or government payers, really thinking about reimbursement, payment, how they design their benefits is when it comes to these transformative medicine and digital therapeutics that we just see growing in number year after year with sort of no end in sight. What does this advancement in technologies and scientific platforms really mean for what gets covered, how it gets covered, and perhaps value-based care arrangements? When I think about this trend, I think of it as transformational, right? So when we think about the impact of things like genomics, and predictive diagnostics that can raise awareness around disease states and cures and things like lifestyle and even prevention. I mean, it's a completely different way of challenging the healthcare system and the way that the healthcare system has operated, which has always been more of a a treatment system, right? And so I think these transformative medicines kind of put to task, what does a system that's been structured to care for people on an ongoing basis start to look like when the treatment could actually be a one and done, or it could be a curative type of treatment rather than just dealing with disease progression or symptoms. And so, you know, I look at just the numbers and think, okay, we, we've gone from, you know, very innovative specialty pharmacy drugs that still are expected to account for about 44% of the pharmacy industry. And now we're starting to talk about cell and gene therapies and what the promise of those mean and the intrinsic value of being able to create medicines, right, that could actually cure diseases. And, And the challenge of that would be that the price points are going to be very high, but the offset of that may be that you're treating patients in a way that they may not have to have ongoing healthcare services. And so when I think about this trend, I mean, my head just starts to go in so many different places because I do think it will be transformative. And while it's in its infancy right now, it's one of those things that's going to only take a couple of products to get to the market before the payer system and providers and even consumers themselves have to start thinking about the value of this and what the value is long-term and how to wrestle with the execution of this. And I think life sciences companies are going to have to be along for the ride to help partner with a new type of healthcare system that's thinking about what these transformative medicines and these digital therapeutics could mean for just the treatment of individuals that are using our healthcare system today in very traditional ways. Another area is like drug repurposing, right? And, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, this this idea of repurposing drugs, which is identifying already FDA approved drugs that may be effective for diseases, and they're not currently approved for another indication or another disease completely. You know, this foray into drug repurposing really speaks to rare disease treatment, which is a micro trend of the life sciences world. There's, there's thousands of FDA approved drugs that treat just like a little tiny fraction of the tens of thousands of human diseases that exist. And there's actually no treatments for for a majority of the diseases, some of which are rare, some of which are fatal. And we know the cost of developing a new drug. It's it's billions of dollars, takes 10 years, 15 years before it's approved for widespread use. And the idea of repurposing drugs is a really efficient, low-cost way that could really help transform medicine and therapy for the future. So I'm, I'm excited to see how that goes as well. 
you know, Ryan, as we, we talk about this trend in general, I mean, the one thing that, that I think it's going to boil down to is life sciences companies take a huge risk as they're developing products. It takes years and years to develop these products. Now we're talking about products in the cell and gene therapy realm where the upfront costs are not only high in the development space, but they're also going to be high to whoever covers them, whatever payer covers them, while the benefits are realized over time. And there's just treatment complexity added into that as well. And so I think what it what this trend really does is hopefully force the healthcare system to realign its footprint around things like payment models and partnerships to account for what the value of transformative medicines mean compared to the lifetime cost of treating a patient. And just think about what types of, we, we always talk about how the claim system is so broken, right? Because it's done after treatment is already delivered. We just think about what these types of transformative medicines are going to force in terms of conversations and thinking around the structure of the healthcare system. And so I, I love this trend because it's in its infancy, but I think it's just going to take a couple of hits with, with these types of medicines to really start to get the dialogue going. And even more so than the dialogue, start to execute on these. And even though many of them may reside in the rare disease space, I don't think that that's going to be the rule of thumb for very long when we talk about cell and gene therapies. I think there's going to be larger populations we also have to contend with. And so as a result, it's going to change the way we think about treatment in general, and, and that will have a cascading effect on all the other practices and you know maybe some of the purpose that we have in the healthcare system. We've certainly given our listeners a lot to consider this episode. Ryan, I'm curious if you have any final thoughts on the upcoming year for our healthcare leaders. I'm hopeful that we can address and affect change with these trends. I think it's the balancing act of balancing a, a real life pandemic that we're still living through with these really important things that we need to, to march forward on. Mindy, anything to add? There's a lot of trends shaping the marketplace and clearly COVID has, has colored the background of it and remains like top priority to try to address and eradicate. But I think when you look at these trends as a healthcare leader, it's, it's choosing which ones either present the most challenge or the greatest opportunity, and then prioritizing where you're going to place your resources, your efforts in order to either address and or try to capitalize on some of these trends, either right now or what the roadmap looks like for the organization as these trends continue to grow and, and then impact the industry in a way that really is probably the roadmap for where this, the healthcare system is going. As you're looking to prioritize across these trends, make sure you check out Bynamic.com later this month for an infographic summary of the industry in 2022. And make sure that you tune in every other Thursday to hear the latest trending news and explore the most impactful industry topics. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.